Hello, everyone. My name is Adrian Harrison, and I'm here with Raphael Benrose. Hey, and we are here to start a new podcast, which, what is it, Raph? What? No, that was my part. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's the Network State Podcast. The Network State Podcast? What does that mean? It's actually a podcast all about starting a new country from scratch. Isn't Wait, that crazy? I, that that sounds that sounds too crazy to be real. Why would you make a podcast about that? What what even is the podcast about? <laughs> so there's a couple new developments in technology recently that have made it possible for people, anybody, to start their own country, and that's what we call a network state. This is an idea that was popularized by somebody named Balaji Srinivasan, who is the ex CTO at Coinbase, and has recently been talking about this a lot. And it's a very fascinating concept because it means so many different things that we're going to dive into in this episode. And, and that's what the podcast is about too, right? That's right. The, the, the series of podcasts will be exploring this immense and, and almost insane concept. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, um, I love so it. So a little bit about me and Raphael. Uh, I'm coming to this from a serial entrepreneur background as someone who uh, was in the ed tech, health tech space uh, and has worked with tech startups all my life. Uh, really interested in philosophy and Web3. Uh, I want to approach this concept as somebody who uh, can see the value of a network state to the global economy. And what about you, Raph? Well, my name is Raphael Benros. As you said before, I'm a marketing and product director for Web3 and video game uh, companies. So similar background to you, but uh, basically I spent the last eight years working in branding and change management for startups and corporations. And I, I just like a good story, you know, I chase a good story and, and this seems like it might just be crazy enough that it's worth our time. So I hope that's <laughs> true for everyone <laughs> listening. Yeah, and Rav's coming at this from a background of international relations, economics and environmental law. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I um, For me, if a good story is one that has like a meaningful impact to society, civilization, and those are the three pillars for me. It's economy, it's politics uh, or diplomacy, and it's law. Those are the institutions that are uniquely human. I'm sure there's some other ones that are uniquely human, like Twitter or YouTube. But um, those are the institutions I'm focusing on, and uh, hopefully we can unpack. Uh, yeah, what are the implications of of the network state in each one of those sectors? Awesome. So uh, let's talk about how you can start a real nation state with diplomatic and economic leverage, thanks to the technology of today. So first let's start with what is a network state? Um, there is a site that Balaji started and a book that he published. It's actually a live book that you can check out at thenetworkstate.com. And that's where you can follow along with all of these sources that we've pulled from. Um, but first and foremost, let's dive into that. Raf, do you wanna take us like, what is the one sentence of what a network state is? Amazing. So again, he's uh, sort of laid it out for us. And the sentence he uh, has come up with is a bit of a run on sentence, which he admits, but uh, let's get into it. So a network state is a highly aligned online community with a capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. Whoa. <laughs> what <is> that <laughs> yeah, that's a novel. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> So that's our back. So um, I, 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 yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean that that's what I found so so interesting is um the this just right from the get-go, the idea that we can turn nation building into like some kind of toolkit. Really exciting, really interesting. And um he he goes deep on it and hopefully we'll be able to unpack that. Um, yeah, as well. Yeah, I think what I got from that and the fact that it can be expressed in one sentence, although it is a run-on, right, is that it's not that hard to create a country. And that's a crazy concept that was never something that had crossed my mind before. And next, he goes into the network state in one image, right? And we'll share this stuff uh, for all of you in the show notes. But what do we think about this image, Raf? So, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's an interesting snapshot of, of what, uh, how he's capturing the metrics, basically, of what he, how he would measure uh, a traditional nation state versus this network state. And I think the argument that he's saying is there are certain components that are necessary that nation states care about that we can capture independently. And then if you put those things together, then you have like a valid state. And I, I mean, I guess the, the picture does a good enough job. I'm not going to judge the designer, you know, who made this. I'm sure he had some things to, to get across. But um, whether or not those are like realistic metrics, uh, and 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 I think you're, you'll be able to get into that, um, and something that we can like measure consistently and accurately. Um, I think that's already where, you know, the theory gets into practice and, and that's kind of, there's so much there that like, yeah, it needs to also be um, looked at because um, yeah, it's, it's, it's these assumptions that technology enable us to do lots of things. But again, the tool that the tools that we're using are sometimes not as sophisticated as we think. And then also uh, it depends on how you use it, basically the technology, whether it's good or bad or whether it can be used to create a state you know what's the motivation behind that in the uh, on top of like uh, aside from just measuring those metrics kind of kind of a big subject <laughs> yeah absolutely and like for the audience right there are just three variables that are presented in this image a population number an annual income number and real world physical assets in measured square meters uh Plus, there's one more variable that's not in this image, but that's explained later on, which is that there has to be diplomatic recognition in order for the country to be recognized uh, as a country by other countries. Mm -hmm. So really, it's only these four variables that determine whether there is a country that is viable in the world. And that's pretty crazy to distill down to such a small number of things. Um, obviously, each of them is big in its own right, but that's still pretty impressive. And then he goes on to describe the network state in 1,000 words. And so my take on that was that countries are essentially treated as startups, which creates a free market where the value of a country is now determined by its ideas and execution rather than its geographical starting line, right? And that's really interesting because of out of the 190 plus countries there are in the world, uh, most of those are small, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but there's only a couple things uh, that are needed for this startup network state uh, to happen. So uh, you can either found a startup society, you can organize it into a group of capable uh, collective action, you can build trust offline and a crypto economy online, you can crowdfund physical nodes, then you can digitally connect physical communities conduct an on-chain census, and lastly, gain diplomatic recognition. So these are those steps. Uh, we'll break each of those down because they're pretty complex, every single one of them. Um, but 
all of those seven steps um, are all that's needed to get this network state up and running. And Raph, what did you think about those, that 1000 word uh, piece? Yeah, I mean, I, I love, it, it's, it's so funny the way that he brings it down, like one sentence, one image, 1000 words, one essay. It's, uh, for me, it almost sounded like a joke in the beginning. Um, so I had a lot of fun seeing <laughs> the steps and being like, you know, like here's the recipe to make a new country. Um, I think- He's like Charlie uh, in the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yeah, it's like, if you can make it through to this point, then here's your reward. You get a, you get a country, you know? Um, right. And again, right. I think that's some of the assumptions that he's making uh, are kind of interesting. Um, I think there, there's two big points that come out of that for me is like, how do you get people to work together in the first place in all of this? Like he, he doesn't really talk about the core mission yet at this point, or we haven't picked that up as like the main message at least. He's just talking about the tooling, which I think is, is to be honest, that's the probably the most um, realistic thing to do because like what's the purpose of a nation is such a fundamental question and we'll, and we'll see that unpacked through history, religion and, and economics and whatnot. But then I think basically what we're, we're seeing is like this is a techno-optimist approach to like, here's how we can proactively and in a fun, constructive way, look at the definition of something that maybe a lot of us are taking for granted, which is what is a country? Like, what is a state? Um, and yes, uh, so far he is ignoring the historical and cultural baggage, which comes to like actually be probably the only reason why we have countries to begin with. Um, but uh, I, I know he loops back around that and we'll hopefully, we, that's not maybe the subject of this uh, chat, but we'll, we'll get into it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, I, I think it's why there are so many countries with small populations because like nobody yeah. starts a country being like, hey, I, I just want to, you know, make the best competitive country. Right. But, um, but no, it's like a historical geographic like uh, thing that happens and comes out. And, and even that is not so clear. So. So right. And when we think about sidestep, just how many startups there are in the world, it's kind of interesting to think, what if all of those were countries, right? Or, or the power of each of them had diplomatic recognition. And, and that becomes a very overwhelming thought very quickly. Okay. So lastly, yeah. he goes into one essay, which is a little bit longer. And we'd encourage everyone to like go through these resources just so you get like the, the, the full summary. Um, and so what I got from that was that the possibility of creating net new network states from a blank slate without causing wars uh, is exciting. And that's because most have been most countries in the past have been created through either election, revolution, war, micronations, seasteading, which is essentially just living on a cruise ship uh, <laughs> and space. Right. Uh, and that's with SpaceX on Mars, uh, as an example. Um, and so. The network state takes the most robust existing tech stack that we have, uh, namely the suite of technologies built around the internet, and uses it to route around political roadblocks without waiting for physical uh, or future physical innovation. Right, And so uh, there is a numerical definition, which is a startup society with 5 million people worldwide, thousands of square miles of discontiguous com community-owned land and billions in annual income uh, would have indisputable numerical significance right, as a um, country. And a societal definition, which is one that is diplomatically recognized by other countries as a legitimate uh, polity capable of self-determination. 
uh, a state with enough such bilateral relationships would have the societal significance to gain ascension to a group of pre-existing states like the ASEAN or the OAS or the African Union or the EU or the United Nations. Uh, and lastly, what we were just talking about, most countries are small countries. Uh, so a new state with a population of one to 10 million would actually be comparable to most existing states. And that's because of the 193 UN recognized sovereign states. 20% uh, of them have a population of less than a million and 55% have a population of less than 10 million. And this includes many countries typically thought of as legitimate, such as Luxembourg, which has 650K uh, people, Cyprus, 1.2 million, Estonia, 1.3 million, New Zealand, 4.7 million, Ireland, 4.8 million, and Singapore, 5.8 million, right? And these user counts are surprisingly small by tech standards um, and even by <laughs> influencer standards, right? Some influencers have over a billion followers. Uh, which is crazy. That's like an eighth of the population um, globally. And so uh, the real estate of these network stakes uh, would create what are called enclaves, right, at first. And those are these like little small community owned pieces of land within other countries, enclaves. Um, but eventually that would be growing and growing and growing. And if those assets are owned by the people who own them or community owned, um, that's enough sovereignty for practical uh, use. And that's really all that matters. Um, and then, you know, the last thing that struck me was that LARPs don't matter until they do. So LARPs live action role play uh, doesn't matter until it does, right? So just like Bitcoin was a LARP for everyone globally until it wasn't because it started making massive um, amounts of money both grow and vanish very quickly. Um, people started to take advantage of that system and are now using it. And some countries have adopted it as their own actual currency, um, which is super significant. Um, and so most of the world's value is fictitious or depends on our shared fantasy slash imagination, um, which just creates trust. So just like uh, Yuval Noah Harari talks about in the book Sapiens, our entire credit system is especially important in the US, but important globally a shared fantasy between humans that this thing has value, right? This piece of paper has value or this check has value because I trust that it has value, right? And it's backed by the US government or it's backed by some army somewhere or it's backed by our shared uh, understanding that this has value, right? And so just like with Bitcoin, we can see a world in which people start to value these network states as being real countries with real power and real influence if they start to influence the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you hit on something I, I, pretty fundamental basically that comes out in this essay is that humans, by definition being social creatures, um, have the capacity to turn ooh, basically like some kind of network uh, union or network effect into the reality for people. And, and I think one point is what we're seeing here is basically like, look at all of the different means that we have, the tools that we can turn that into reality for people. So some things that we've never had before. And I think that's why it's interesting to like, look at this today. 
um, it's you, you threw a lot of information, like what does it mean numerical definition? Why should we even care about that? Um, what is the societal definition? How does this compare to those different organizations that you mentioned, like the ASEAN or the African Union, the EU, the United Nations? They're all very different organizations. But basically what we're saying is there's, there's, uh, there's now, like you said, a tech stack, a tech stack that allows you to create things that could act in those spaces in a significant way uh, that we've never seen before, that we should be paying attention to. That's really cool. Um, the fact that there's 8 billion people and 55% of the nations uh, that exist don't cover even like a, uh, you know, like a, a small percent of what those are. Um, yeah. Really interesting. And um, I don't know if we should be looking at companies. I, I mean, basically there's a, there's, a, there's a spectrum here that we're, that he's like implicitly um, sharing with us, which is numbers matter size matters and, um, and and there's two sides to that. There's one nation, one person nations perhaps that have a lot of wealth, imagine a billionaire, you know, they could start up their own nation, yep. like no questions asked basically. Uh, they're hitting all those metrics. They just happen to be one person. So that's like one extreme of the spectrum. The other extreme is no, we have tons of people in these um, uh, trying to connect a lot of pieces of land, but let's say actually maybe they don't um, they don't have that high of a means, but yet they're representing a lot of people. That is more of a traditional like uh, issue that nations today have like had to face. It's how do you turn that mass of people into something that matters on the world stage? That's a motivation as well. So it's funny because it's it's regrouping two trends that we see um, in society today, which is like mm -hmm. billionaires, this like as individuals are able to weigh on the system significantly. Mm -hmm. And then countries also wanting to weigh on the system go through their own sort of uh, cycles of progress and this is and and he's just basically opening the toolkit and saying look if people care about numbers and society cares about like who gets admitted where we can place those into people's hands and and see what happens basically i think it's really interesting so let's dive into you know why does this matter what does it even mean for the future of humanity and then i want to dive into like what are the technologies involved in building network state and show how easy this really is right so why does this matter, right? I think you hit on a bunch of really interesting points that are very important to remember, um, which is that billionaires have unprecedented amounts of power, right? And CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg, like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, um, all have power that is greater uh, than the American president today. Uh, and that's because their international influence is so much stronger. Um, Just a controversial statement of the day. <laughs> for, for sure, right? Yeah. But that's why this is so interesting because um, if Mark Zuckerberg chose to you know, change certain features for all of Africa and Asia and Europe, he could, right? And he could do that any day that he decides. Um, and so- Not, not only, and, and the fact that people work for him, right? That he, he's right. got- tens of thousands of these, these guys have hundreds of thousands of people behind them. Millions, really, actually, if you're Amazon. So um, it, it definitely yeah. begs the question, right? And so like, I, I, I say that controversial statement kind of to open the discussion, because I wonder, right, what is more powerful between the US president, Vladimir Putin, uh, president of China, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, <laughs> the uh, education system in the world, the militaries of the world, 
um, what yeah, actually you... has the most amount of influence on how the world works, the billionaires of the world, yeah. right? Um, if, if you ask me, my answer is, I think the billionaires collectively have more influence over global uh, influence in yeah. general than one world leader. I think uh, in the West, it's true. We do place, I mean, the West follows an individualistic sort of philosophy as underpinning like economy, society, social mm -hmm. contracts, whatever. So it makes sense that we look at the most successful individuals and pay attention to them. Um, whether that's true outside of the West, as far as like, um, I guess, East Asia, but then Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, I'm not sure. I think there's different value systems that would mean that you might be paying attention to, let's say, the Pope. What is the Pope doing? Or what is this uh, football star doing? Or um, actually, you're paying attention more to your parents or your grandparents um, and seeing like, OK, what is my like local network working on um, and, and thinking about? Um, so so I think there is something about like it being West specific. That being said, uh, if you look at like the top um, employers around the world, these are organizations that uh, some we know, some we don't know, like um, McDonald's, Amazon, Walmart huge um in the uk we have uh we have I'm, I'm based in london so we have the nhs the national health system or uh yeah i think that's what it's called <laughs> um and uh uh service yeah national health service sorry um and um that that's like a firstly it's a huge um part of the government but then it's also uh, the largest employer for the country and and in, in one of the like on scale of the world but then if you look at the top um, employers, it's actually like the US military or the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Chinese different uh, factions of military. And then you have the Chinese uh, state owned uh, enterprises, specifically in energy. Uh, so oil and gas uh, and so on. Um, so there's things in there that you sort of get like a makeup of what society looks like and where um, the top sectors are that you can't ignore. Um, you know, there's military that's underpinning all of this. We have energy that we need for everything that we do. We have um, retail, and then you have health services. Yeah. Um, how those are those services are represented uh, for a nation today? Not sure. What a billionaire like does, you know, to support these kinds of systems? Unsure. And yet, those are like sort of basically what we're saying is those are kind of the fundamental needs of our world, our society today. I think the network stake is interesting. Is interesting because it can sort of redraw those lines. Totally. And um, how far that goes. Reprioritize uh, what's important and what has exactly. influence on the world and what attracts the much, most amount of people and power. Much more interesting than trying to follow what a billionaire will do, which is still just one individual, basically. Right. Um, and yes, they carry a lot of weight, but um, you know, nothing gets done at their level without hundreds of people thousands of people helping them so back to why this matters and you know we touch on a lot of points here but on the macro scale uh for the world um if some of you have uh, heard of ray dalio and his book on the changing world order uh highly recommended as well we're currently going through a transition of world orders from the u.s to china it started with you know portuguese that then transferred to the United Kingdom, which then transferred to the US and is now transferring potentially to China. And so what we need is more competition 
uh, to create an idea meritocracy where the best ideas win out um, and to create more balance in the world, right? So if we believe that people's ideas uh, that are most deserving of merit, and that is measured by how many people buy into the idea or believe in the idea or support the idea and allow it to come to fruition, uh, and we allow that to happen, and that's a good thing, which is still a question that we have to ask ourselves, but if that's a good thing, uh, that then creates enough competition for China um, to be contested or whatever world dominating power to be contested. And that's important because if those dominating powers are uncontested and are practicing unethically or doing things that are highly immoral, um, there's no one who can question that power. And like we just talked about, right, if they own the biggest military complex or they own the biggest infrastructure complexes like energy and health or whatever our most crucial, you know, uh, lowest rung Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, they can manipulate us to do anything. And we kind of saw this with uh, Vladimir Putin taking over the Ukraine and then basically uh, understanding that winter was coming for Europe, Germany is going to be in massive need of oil because their people are going to get too cold or they're going to need it to cook or whatever it is. And then, boop, they can just turn off the tap and now they can manipulate the country in whichever way they want, right? And so now it's no longer, okay, EU against and NATO against Russia. It's uh, Russia determines the survival of your country. And so either you play by their rules or, you know, we'll make sure that you don't have any gas, right? And so we don't want any of those dependencies and it will create a lot more um, uh, free market type forces that again have their own negative uh, sides, but are overall important to keep the possibility of a good player to be at the top. Um, and so once we have that leader, right, whether it's a network state or not, uh, that most powerful state would need to lead uh, the others, both from an ethical and a uh, military or power standpoint, if we believe in like, you know, big gun or biggest stick theory, right? Which is whoever has the biggest stick is going to create order for everybody else, uh, unless there is an effective international organization that can step in and do that. But as we've seen with the United Nations, that's not really effective. Uh, and it really ends up being, you know, either the US for now, who determines, okay, like this is how the way the world is going to work, uh, at least within these guidelines, um, or else, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, so that's one reason why it's really important. Anything that you want to talk about with that, Raf, before we move on to the next? Yeah, um, I mean, the way I understand it is um, network state becomes interesting if it is the prevalent system. So the path to being uh, recognized an individual network state, that would be the experiment to do. And then, uh, you know, if that somehow is being recognized and is offering like really so many benefits that everybody would hop onto that, you know, as if as if you could introduce disruption into the way that you def like define nations. Really interesting. Again, um, putting aside all of the practical um, problems uh, about how you do that. Um, what I could see happening is, uh, speaking of like shifting hegemony um, in terms of like the US versus uh, China, it could be in the interest of a rising power like China to want to actually support the um, problem, the or like promote basically this model, mm -hmm. where they act as the centralized backers of the formation of network states, 
and then are able to provide the infrastructure and uh, yeah, just the, the backing in terms of uh, power, need powers or financial powers to deploy those things, um, those network states, and um, basically create its own sort of sphere of influence in that sense. And, and that's interesting for a com like a rising power or competing power, because obviously the current model, as you say, whether it's too simple or not, at least is more or less in the hands of whatever the US um, is willing to tag along with. And if the US doesn't tag along with, then it usually means that it's not really that uh, effectively like run by anybody else. Right. And it's didn't it's mean to actually, say it like that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that is the way that China's doing it currently, right? So they're making deals with lots of African and South American countries where we will provide the infrastructure to you, right? We're gonna give you everything you need as a third world or developing country to rise in power. But, right, the other end of that is now we control everything, right? Now you are reliant on us. And uh, not only that, but we have all your data. And so we get to manipulate you in any ways that we see fit, right? And so it's kind of making like a deal with the devil where, again, it's buying into this, uh, uh, reliance on some other country, one other type, right, for essential needs. And I think ultimately, if the world is to be in a much more peaceful place, um, these kinds of need exchanges would have to be uh, minimized, right? Or the amount of leverage one nation has over another would need to be not significant enough to eradicate that other country, right? Um, and instead, it would become much more of a want market, right? So um, in, in, in startup um, uh, world, right, we would talk about, uh, does this service a need or does this service a want? Uh, and in most cases, you want your business to service a need. That way, people need to pay for it instead of want to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. And in this case, um, having this need is kind of an existential threat. Um, and that's not necessarily part of uh, a good deal, right? Um, so this is where it becomes really important as well for these smaller nations, right? It's going to give them a voice and powerful tools uh, to the people uh, that are in situations of poverty or corruption to be able to consolidate their power uh, regardless of their geographical significance and actually make things happen with that based on the ideology that they're purporting, right? So let's say, uh, for example, I'm currently in the Dominican Republic and uh, in Punta Cana specifically, uh, there's an interesting story of how this uh, place was made, right? So there were about four people who came together, uh, two Dominican guys, um, and uh, uh, the father of Enrique Iglesias, whose name I'm blanking on, uh, and an American who I also uh, don't remember the name, but wasn't a, a powerful litigator, right? And so these four people <laughs> came together to basically create Punta Cana as the most uh, attractive tourist destination for the Dominican Republic, right? And so they went to the government and they said, hey, we want to do this big project, um, but we need an airport uh, because otherwise we're not going to be able to attract all these people from overseas. And uh, the government was like, we already have a deal with this other airport. They don't want you to make an airport, so you can't uh, do that, or we're not going to help you do that. And eventually, Arinieri, who's one of the people who uh, started that in Punta Cana, uh, was negotiating with this government and got them to give him permission to do it himself, 
right? But without any help. Um, and eventually they were able to do that successfully. And now Punta Cana and the surrounding region here is extremely well-developed in comparison to the rest of the Dominican Republic. And why does this matter? Because ultimately it was the government's responsibility to uh, use taxpayers' money to help build infrastructure and service all the needs of all of the people everywhere in the country, right? Not just in Punta Cana. And then of course, once these entrepreneurs uh, were able to successfully build a uh, money producing initiative here, and it became a very popular tourist destination, the government came back to them and said, hey, well, now that you guys got something up and running and it's working great, we want our cut, right? And so um, with these network states, it's circumventing that, where you don't necessarily need your local government support if the idea of what you want to create is powerful enough, you can connect to anybody anywhere in the world. And because it's backed by this crypto economy, they can send you that currency, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, doesn't really matter. USDC could be a stable coin. Doesn't, it doesn't matter as long as it's efficient enough, right, to be sent cheaply, quickly. Um, and then the people who are locally in that place uh, can undertake the projects, right? They can start buying those square meters worth of real estate. They can start implementing uh, new businesses that can start generating income, right? And now you've crowdsourced and crowdfunded a small enclave in Punta Cana or in the DR that can compete or stand out regardless of local government support. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, firstly, it's, it's it's such a cool story, such an interesting story. I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, it feels classically like uh, development projects uh, getting kicked off for just the value of the land itself and then offering something for the highest bidder. Um, obviously, that model, you know, been replicated across the world and then is interesting for local um, uh, governments or governments to just be involved in. Um, the reality is, is like Punta Cana still exists and obviously there's been a deal struck with the government um, mm -hmm. so that, you know, this works smoothly and hopefully um, it's now taken into account in terms of like, okay, how does this uh, product, productive area sort of like feed into the rest of the development of the country? And, and so, you know, there's ways that like politics can um, have these kind of upstart projects kind of like f go back into the fold. So, so it's interesting for everyone, no matter what stage you're at in the um, spectrum of like full on state or like startup nation or whatever. But um <laughs> to steal the the label i think for israel but um it would be maybe interesting to cover like what are the technologies that we're talking about specifically um break those down because we're talking about blockchain cryptocurrency making this possible probably as like the biggest leap in terms of like organizing um there's a lot of interesting things that you can just sort of code the way that things are being run into the blockchain that that's something that people sort of just abide by management of treasuries that that gives you a far reaching arm in terms of governance, which now has an impact on real assets and, and vice versa, you know, like that you would wanna be playing a role within the Web3 space as well. Really interesting. Um, I know there's other tech groups that we should be looking at. Um, Adrian, maybe you wanna like list some of those out so that mm -hmm. um, totally. you know, we get kind of an understanding of what it take to make a, a network stake today. Like, what do you need? So why is this uh, important? What, what's the technology, right? Uh, it's because you can leverage this technology to solve systemic issues of government, healthcare, education, 
uh, and that allows you as a country or a network state to become more adaptable and therefore resilient, right? And so even in massive countries that are the most developed around the world, almost everybody will agree they have something wrong in one of those critical areas. Either their education system is messed up, their healthcare system is messed up, their government is messed up, or all of the above, right? And this is in the most advanced countries of the world. So that's already um, saying a lot because there's still so much to be done. Um, I guess so. Just on, yeah. on that, sorry, just um, how exactly does um, this grouping of technology make things work? Uh, like, mm -hmm. how does that bring solutions to the market? Not sure. Uh, curious to see, like, how we dive into that. But um, we will have yeah. to dive into those, I think, individually in future episodes. We'll, we'll dissect how this can be applied to the healthcare industry. How could this be applied to the education system? How could this be applied to running a government? Um, and these are all uh, really interesting applications of the technology. But to break it down in simple, um, the most simple parts first, right? Uh, there's Web 2 technology. And to understand Web 2, let's start with Web 1, right? So what is, and people have heard like Web 1, Web 2, Web 3 thrown around all the time, very broad terms, and they're not defined. So we need to define them here to make sure that everyone's on the same page about what those mean. So Web 1 was the very beginning of the internet. It's when people were able to access information from other people online. That's it, right? And that was already a hugely revolutionary idea. Instead of having like libraries in a bunch of places around the world, it was now every piece of information could be put online so that anyone anywhere could access it. Huge, right? Web two was being able to then build um, or use those rather to share, right? So social medias uh, as a great example. So now you could have a Facebook profile and on your Facebook profile, you could create stuff, right? You could have a blog, you could write things on that blog and share it with other people. You could have a vlog, a video blog, right? And share videos with other people. And so it's a, the ability to create content and share that content now on top of everything. And now I think lastly, we're web two. Right. We're right. web two. This makes current. us web two. <laughs> this we, we is are a web, web two, two space. This is a We're not web, web two yeah. space right now. Uh, however, we are now transitioning into web three, which in a macro sense is just the ability to now own these assets, right? So uh, whereas in the past, you your YouTube channel, for example, or your blog or whatever was technically owned, unless you run your own server, right? by somebody who's giving you that server space to be able to do whatever you wanna do and share your video. Uh, Web3 is now saying you can now own everything in a cryptographically backed way on chain, meaning on a blockchain that verifies that you are in fact the owner of these assets, whether that's a cryptocurrency or um, a crypto asset like an NFT, right? So a digital file of some sort, uh, it doesn't really matter what. Um, and most importantly, the last piece, a real estate market, right? So the combination of web two tech, web three tech, and a real estate market. Real estate market way, being web zero, right? Yeah, technically web zero, right? Where just people would go to somebody else and say, hey, I want to buy this piece of land. Can I do that? And now I own this piece of land, right? And I can do whatever I the, want. Uh... One of the oldest uh, documented uh, transactions, basically, in human history. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but I think that there's definitely some uh, some sexier ones that happened before that. But we'll have to get to that in another episode. 
Let's keep it PC. Isn't prost <laughs> prostitution, I think, is the oldest profession in the world, no? Um, so to break each of those steps down that we went over, right, to found a startup society, you need Web2 tech, right, websites, social media, et cetera. Uh, to organize it into a group of capable collective action, uh, you need a communication infrastructure, which again is offered by Web2 stuff. So that could be like a Slack group, that could be like iMessage, that could be a social media group, doesn't really matter as long as people can communicate online, right? You need to build trust offline and a crypto economy online. So in order to do that, you need blockchain uh, because you need a cryptocurrency, which is always on a blockchain uh, and smart contracts, which is what allows people to create contracts that are executed by code, and therefore they do not need a third party arbitrator to make sure that the contracts are in fact enforced or followed. It's just, if X happens, then Y happens. And that's all through the code, nobody needed to enforce it. Uh, because if it doesn't happen, right, X conditions aren't met, then Y conditions aren't met. And so both parties can then trust each other without the need of that arbitrator. arbitrator. Okay, then you need to crowdfund physical nodes, right, which we covered a little bit, which is real estate purchasing power. So you need that real estate market to be able to buy a building, right, or buy a house that then becomes a building, that then becomes a neighborhood, that then becomes whatever, and create those enclaves of a community uh, where people can live. And then digitally connect physical communities, which again is communication infrastructure, right? Uh, and then you need to be able to conduct an on-chain census, which brings us back to needing blockchain technology with both a uh, cryptocurrency and smart contracts uh, and real world, uh, or sorry, uh, digital world identities, right? So if you have a verifiable identity as a citizen, right? Or digital passport, uh, which would be an NFT, um, because it's non-fungible, uh, you can then see how many citizens are there in this network state actually, right? How many NFTs have been created? And of all those NFTs, right? How many wallets have been connected to this blockchain or this network's, uh, network state's blockchain? And how many assets therefore are owned in total by this network state? And that's what brings us to, you know, the verifiable amounts of people, right? So population, and the variable amount of annual income or real world assets or uh, physical world assets um, that that network state owns. And then lastly, right, to gain that diplomatic recognition, you just need enough of those verifiable metrics that are tracked and shareable to other states so that that network state can then say, hey, UN, we want recognition because we have X amount of people in our population. We have X amount of annual income or the equivalent of a GDP, right? We have Y amounts of real estate or real world physical assets. And we are powerful enough to do X, Y, Z. And therefore we wanna be recognized by other countries so that we can have our own government, et cetera. And then one piece that isn't covered here, uh, but that I think is really important that kind of goes in with the on-chain census is that this blockchain technology can also be used for voting and for running a government. So just like the Ethereum uh, entire network is run through a governance system of everybody can vote, right? If you own Ethereum or ETH, you can vote on any proposal to the Ethereum network. And so people, anybody can put out a proposal. People can then vote on those proposals. If those proposals are accepted by a majority of people, uh, they can then get implemented by core developers and that's how it, it's executed. And so these network states can have very similar systems in which 
anybody can make proposals. People can then vote on those proposals. And then whichever people uh, volunteer or are paid to execute those proposals, it then happens that way. And again, this would all happen on chain. So it's all uh, verifiable and trustworthy so that if you know, the majority of the population decides, okay, we want to buy this building in this country because we think that that's worth it. Um, and, you know, this is the person, this individual citizen with this unique identifier, NFT, passport, whatever, uh, is charged with executing that transaction in the real world. Uh, and then they mess it up or they do something wrong or whatever. There could be a smart contract as like, if this doesn't happen by X date, and this money isn't transferred to this account, whatever, X, Y, Z, then you get slashed, right? Not only do you lose your citizenship or something like that, but you also lose X amount of collateral that was put up by you or anything like that to kind of enforce um, and put up these trust systems that don't need a judicial system for now, right? And eventually, obviously, afterwards, you can make a proposal to have a judicial system and uh, do all of that as well. But that's kind of a breakdown of all the tech. <laughs> That was, yeah, that was, that was huge. You're clearly very passionate and perhaps also very well informed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know um, about that, but <laughs> we'll get to that soon enough. Um, yeah. So any comments on that before we close out with what does this all mean for the future of humanity? I mean, whoa, like in, my first question would be like, I just, I just sort of want to see this like what, what, what's the first step that you would take anyway is kind of curious. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think that's what we're going to be covering right next uh, in the series, because if you're listening closely, there is so much information that like is building off of this. There's so much uh, assumptions that we're making in terms of like what we understand, how do we understand them in our life that I think is, is really important to look into. This is not just some kind of crazy proposal and saying, you know, like, let's ignore the reality. No, some, someone out there is, is really banging the drum and saying like, no, we should look at this. This is a real possibility. Um, so they've done the work. We're going to check and go through those sources and, and see what that actually means. But um, the way you make it sound like is something that like is like let's let's just get it off the ground you know like how do we how do we how do we take that first step it's and, just um, it's just like a startup right it's like uh, yeah what's the idea who believes in it let's get it off the ground yeah let's let's see if we can how far can we get and like keep iterating on that it has that vibe which sounds insane but uh you know crazier things have happened also worse things have happened so <laughs> exactly right like we said the larping is only larping until it's not and so mm. it's just really exciting to think about you know the possibilities and like you said right i mean so many assumptions that we're making so many rabbit holes that we could dive into but we're going to give it to you listeners in a structured and cohesive way so that we can all follow this journey together and see what oh. is happening in the world of network states um, we, we we are we're, we're going to be structured <laughs> <laughs> that's, we, that's actually a great point. Maybe we won't be so structured. We're going to be very free flowy <laughs> instead. We're going to jump all around. Now, we want an hour and a half of just of just rambling. Of just rambling. That's right. That's what that's you what come podcasts to are, right? That's right. Um, okay. So, what does this mean for the future of humanity? Uh, I think that optimistically, uh, this could be a more fair, advanced world where people have abundance, uh, freedom and choices to support the states that they believe in rather than the, store, the states that they were born into, right? And so that's really important because of social mobility. Um, and I believe that if social mobility is extremely high, uh, we can solve most of the world's biggest problems. Um, 
pessimistically. That's really just just on that, like the, the social mobility as something that you could hard code into like the nation's makeup. Right. Really interesting. As in there are no more physical boundaries. We've shifted everything onto a digital space, which represents physicality, but is not bound by physic physicality. Exactly. Really, really interesting sort of noble idea that is worth listening to. Again, I think the biggest thing, the biggest lift that's required for all of this is can we still make the bare minimum services available to everyone and who's making those investment investments into what you know what, that infrastructure totally. that we need in terms of energy safety uh education and health uh to name a few um i think that's that those hard society like services that you just can't go without um really interesting how that's different but but the social mobility in terms of like uh like human welfare really really like beautiful concept and and i yeah i think that that makes sense that that comes from the optimistic sort of right exactly so i'm guessing the pessimistic is just a crumbling <laughs> of society <It's> a... <laughs> basically yeah right so from a more pessimistic perspective this could be also the technology that leads to an accelerated demise or self-destruction due to a highly powerful and manipulative um, amount of people uh that make their way to the top and control everything even more easily than they already do right so we think about like you know the meetings at davos or well i don't know there's one of those meetings where it's like the 150 most powerful people in the world um and so just in in america we have um if you're a ceo of a forbes uh 500 company then um you're put in a room with all of your friends who are also yep. ceos and then also the president there you go right and so we know that those meetings are where a lot of decisions about how the world is going to look happen. And when I uh, read the book, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, who is kind of like a modern Machiavelli, uh, what you learn is that there's a very high and shocking amount of people, uh, percent of the population globally, that is either a narcissist or a sociopath. And so those people tend to find themselves at the what, top. What, me? <laughs> what? Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so those people tend to find themselves in positions of power because if you're a narcissist or you're a sociopath and you don't care about manipulating <clears throat> people, if you have a if you have a podcast, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Just like I like listening to you speak. Right? I love um, listening to you speak. Wait, oh I'm, my god! I'm speaking wow. right now. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, look at our narcissism uh, is a, a prime example because. The, those kinds of people uh, can get to the top much more easily than people who care about uh, other people. Uh, and that's because if you don't care about people's emotions or your ethics or morals or whatever, you can manipulate people and that's much more um, effective or I wouldn't say effective, maybe quick of getting a quick win to getting yourself to the top. Whether that lasts or not, TBD. But if you are already in that position of power and now you have that power and then you start acting in those ways, like absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Uh, now you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to care, right? And this is a prime example of like governments in the DR, corrupt governments in the world, right? Um, uh, the Chinese government uh, taking over uh, countries and eradicating populations, uh, Russia taking over countries, um, right, like, and the and the U.S. doing it all the time, right? So many different ways that people in power have abused that power, um, and so this system 
if there is a uh, bad actor who promotes the wrong ideals, but those wrong ideals tend to be very profitable, which happens a lot, um, then those people could become the most powerful network state or that power could become the most powerful network state very quickly. And then it would Basically, have even more influence than any other country. And that would be a huge problem. And empowering billionaires with nation building tools could be scarier than we're thinking. Or than we're currently I mean, to be honest, that, that yeah. sounds scary just, just on paper. So right. I hope Elon Musk is not listening. <laughs> we want everybody to listen, but Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> but so it basically comes down to, you know, good versus evil, right? What's going to win out between human nature and this and, more pessimistic view is like, if right, people are right, good, exactly. then yeah. the most powerful network state will be good. If people are bad, then the most powerful network state will be bad. And therefore, we need to be very careful about who is empowered to uh, take control. Uh, basically, or have the most amount of influence. And then and, will there be a second player, right? If a bad actor makes its way to the top, will there be a powerful enough second player that's good who can eventually beat uh, the top player and change the world order in that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that sense, it, it doesn't sound like it changes so much in terms of the, the playing field. Um, again, it, it seems like it's the space that the network state uh, proposal um, puts together is really look here are the tools put them in the hands of humans just happens that these tools might be very powerful um but the question is still the same um underlying all of that if i'm allowed to say that word one more time um it's it it, it is i just it does come down to uh, you know your your education the society the you know sort of that osmosis of of nurture versus nature right um and, and how do you direct people? I mean, are there checks and balances in your own life in terms of how you make decisions? What's the path to correcting mistakes? Um, all of that, I'm, I'm not sure how deep actually he goes into that. I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. Um, in, it's a lot of reading that we've had to do, but I haven't seen that come up as much, but um, it, presumably if there are bad actors, you know, does that mean they're actually bad people or is it a bad action that we can then correct? Um, right. If this if this nation building tool allows us to correct course more easily, then we, we do have something here that's much more valuable than the issues we've come about with certain modern states where it's like, we're not able to deal with history. We're not able to pay reparations when, when it's important. We're not able to come to terms with some of the horrible things that certain states have done. And, and if we have, you know, is it done in the right way to the right extent? Is there not trauma passed on? I mean, these are very real questions that like if, if any other system is being proposed and it doesn't and it is there to propose something positive versus like something degrading to humanity, then um, it should be able to treat that more effectively. So I, I think that's a bit of a barometer also in terms of like, what are the models coming up? And this shouldn't just be an excuse to try and come up with a more efficient state, but then also like a, a state that is more sustainable. Um, right, exactly. Capable of dealing with its own internal issues. And so this is where it gets really complicated, but also very interesting because ultimately we already have something like this, um, right? It's already happening. It's kind of happening with credit and money right now, right? Um, and so the way I see the network state tools are kind of like money on crack, right? <laughs> like money squared, um, because now it's not just actual money, which is part of the assets of a network state. It's also people, 
It's also real world assets. Um, it's also the most advanced cutting edge technology in every way. Um, and therefore a more efficient uh, allocation of power and energy and anything that is needed basically to get things happen quickly without these established bureaucracies that most governments have found themselves in. Uh, and therefore they can navigate like startups and disrupt massively. And that could either be a great thing or that could be a very bad thing. And as we've seen many times, disruption is incredibly powerful, uh, but it's usually done quickly. Uh, and therefore the rest of the world that's getting disruptive, uh, disrupted doesn't have enough time to prepare for that. And so a lot of people suffer as a result. And this is something that we're seeing with like automation today, right? Um, so we have to be very careful about how we wield this sword. And it's very likely that it's going to cause a lot of problems but if we wield it well, it will also cause a lot of solutions. And so our goal is just to talk about it, to create a platform for everyone here to be able to voice their opinions uh, and to figure out uh, for better or worse, right? How do we make the future a better place for as many people as possible um, so that we uh, uh, figure out what could go wrong before it happens to us and leverage what could go right and lean in that direction. Amazing. Just two young dudes trying to make the world a better place. That's how <laughs> I would sum up the podcast, basically. The Network State Podcast. Trademark us. There's <laughs> um, that narcissism, baby. All right. So thanks for tuning in. Saving the world one conversation at a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, before we wrap up, Raph, do we want to go over any supporting material or should we pick that up in future episodes? Yeah, I think let's pick that up and maybe make that part of the next episode, which is like, we really lay down the, the links. Of course we should share those, or we're gonna share those in the descriptions um, for all of this. For sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm excited because what I thought was going to be sort of a rabbit hole 4chan discussion has leveled up to being more of a, oh, this could be like a, a healthy subreddit, you know, like middle of the way, you know, like I like cat photos kind of conversation. <laughs> Hopefully we can we can bring it into something a little bit more mainstream, and and not lose everybody along the way. But um, I, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening to to us. And and there's probably a lot of ramblings, a lot of uh, information that needs to be still unpacked and perhaps defined. And and that's why podcasts have more than one episode. So stick around. We'll be right. Stick around, guys. Like, subscribe, comment. Let us know your thoughts. Share it and rate the podcast. Uh, sign up for our newsletter at. Uh, networkstatepodcast.com uh, to get exclusive perks like our member community deals on merch and early access to some surprises. We'll check in with you next time. All the best. Thank you.